Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guests will be Gretchen Smith from the Edisto Island Historical Preservation Society and Mary Elliott and Nancy Burkall, who are curators with the Smithsonian, and they're attached to what will be the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We're going to talk about a slave cabin from Edisto Island, South Carolina, its history, and how this particular artifact is going to become the centerpiece of a new exhibit in our nation's capital. I'll have this conversation with Gretchen, Nancy, and Mary, but first, your NPR Newsbreak. With me today in the SCANA studio in Columbia is Gretchen Smith, who is the director of the Edisto Island Historical Preservation Society and Museum. And from NPR Studios in Washington, D.C., we have Nancy Burkall and Mary Elliott, who are curators with the Smithsonian Institution and especially connected with the soon-to-be-opened National Museum of African American History and Culture. We're going to discuss an exhibit which will be a part of the new museum, and it's centered around a piece of South Carolina history, a slave cabin from one of the Maybank plantations on Edisto Island. Gretchen, from the local end, how did this all start? It really started uh, initial conversations with the Maybanks back in 2007 with one of our former board members, Mr. Maybank. Burnett Maybank was on our board at that time. And he had a slave cabin on his property, which is Point of Pines Plantation. And one of our board members had a discussion with him about the possibility of donating the cabin to us to renovate, remove over over to the uh, museum. It sort of died away. Nothing happened for two years. And then when I came on, I approached Mr. Maybank again in 2009 to see if he was still interested in the possibility of doing that. He agreed that he would do that. And so we began as a board to decide whether that was something we wanted to do, could do. Uh, there are very few slave cabins left on the island. There were really these only... the only one left was on the Point of Pines Plantation, so we felt very committed to it being uh, saved. The only way to save it, because it was on private property, uh, and the Maybanks were not going to do anything with it, was to move it to our museum where it would be open for the public to see. Now, we need to explain to folks why is because outbuildings are taxed. They're taxed as property, so... That while there were lots of slave cabins at one time, most of the plantation owners, and current as well as former, let them go into disrepair, disuse, fall down. Some got struck by lightning. Some just blew down. Some were torn down because they didn't want to pay taxes on them. They certainly didn't improve most of them. So this this one cabin was in a great state of disrepair, completely overgrown with um, kudzu and you know vines. You could hardly see it. So when we first went out to, to see what was there, we were a little bit daunted by the task, uh, but committed to trying to save it for, for history. So that's how it started. Okay. And when did the Smithsonian get involved? Much later, uh, we spent four years trying to save the cabins. We had numerous consultants. We we started, we stopped. We started, we stopped. Over four years, we had to go through permitting processes, coming up to code, I mean, sort of... No, no, wait a minute. You have a historical structure, really a historical artifact. Yes. And you've got building codes you've got to deal with? In Charleston County, and probably true in any county, if if you're renovating something, there's a lot of discussion about bringing it up to code. You know, we're in the hurricane. Um, no, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm having a real hard time. Charleston County, the center of historic preservation in the state of South Carolina and probably the South, if you're going to bring this up to code on Edisto Island, you got to put it up on stilts? Exactly. We had there we, we tried to work around that there, there were a lot of ways of getting around it. Do a berm, do uh, certain elevations. We tried every way we possibly could. Eventually we did get the permit from Charleston County where it would not have to be on stilts, thank God, but we would have had to do a berm. But the real problem was that we just could not afford to do it. It became much more um, financially prohibitive for us to be able to save those cabins. It, yes, you're, you're a very small organization. Yes, and there was no, no federal, no state funding at that time, as you recall. That's when the economy was tanked. And so there were no grants. We, you know, we tried to find money, and there was none to be had. So after four very frustrating and disappointing years, we finally had to admit that we couldn't do it. 
we just could not save these buildings. And that's when Mary Elliott showed up on our doorstep from the Smithsonian and saved the day. Mary, a couple of things. How did you find out about this cabin on Edisto Island? And let our listeners know what you do there at the Smithsonian. <laughs> Well, what I do at the Smithsonian, I'm currently working on the Slavery and Freedom exhibit, which is one of the largest exhibits at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is currently under construction due to open in 2015, the end of the 2015 year. And what I do is work on the exhibit. I help with um, acquiring objects for the collection. I help with developing the script for the exhibit. I help with conducting research to make sure that we provide some of the most exciting stories with um, some of the most um, current research studies that we know of relating to African-American history and culture, particularly during the period of prior to the transatlantic slave trade all the way through reconstruction. So that's some of the stuff that I do, and it's a fun and exciting job. So how did you hear about – Gretchen said you appeared on her doorstep, and knowing Gretchen, that's probably literally what happened. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Well, you want to hear the fun and exciting way I ended up with Gretchen, and it it really is exciting because – We did a preliminary trip down to South Carolina because we're very interested in um, using South Carolina, um, the stories that are in South Carolina, as part of the content for this very large exhibit. It's about 17,000 square feet. And we went down to meet with some folks, including folks at Drayton Hall, and we had the good fortune of going by and visiting um, McLeod Plantation. Mm -hmm. And we met a young lady there who um, we shared with her that we were in search of a slave cabin for the exhibit. She, in turn, after we left, was kind enough to share that information with one of Gretchen's board members, a gentleman named Bill Davies. And Mr. Davies then reached out to us and said, I understand that you're looking for a slave cabin. And he said that he knew of two that we might be interested in. Let me add, I'd I'd spoken with another friend who was a former board member of the Edisto Island Historic Preservation Society. And he mentioned to us as well that there were two cabins that were um, potential for us to use. So the people of South Carolina have been really wonderful and forthcoming in helping us with our efforts in this cabin is a a big push. So um, we got a call from Bill Davies, and we um, instantly got on top of everything and arranged for a trip down to South Carolina, and we were met by... Gretchen and her other board member, Carol Belser, as well as um, Bill Davies. And they were very hospitable and showed us around the grounds of Point of Pines Plantation. And um, I have to say, I went down with two other colleagues, one, Corrine Morrison, who is a collections manager, and then our chief of design, Brian Sealing. We inspected the site, and we were very excited. So um, that's how it got started. You went down there and you saw this dilapidated building covered with kudzu and honeysuckle vines and Virginia creeper and everything else. That now we had clear, we had done some work. Oh, you cleared it. Yes. Oh, okay. And we'd they done some shoring it. up. Yeah, they cleared it. The only thing they didn't clear completely were the spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Mary's deathly afraid of spiders. <laughs> well, that's just part. That's just part of living on that's Estelle, right. ma'am. Yes, I had to go into my um, Indiana Jones mode. Yeah, <laughs> she was uh, quite um, stirred up by those spiders. Okay. All right, let's let's describe Nancy. We want to bring you in the conversation and have you two ladies talk about first of all, Nancy, a little bit about what you do at the Smithsonian, and then let's talk about the structure itself. Let's give a verbal description so our listeners out there will have an idea of what it's about. And, Nancy, I don't know if you want to do this or not, but we need to explain what, that there were two. Okay. Because we do refer to there were two. That there, were the, two there were two cabins on, on the Maybank. That the Maybanks gave us. I was first brought into this project when I was hired. I was very delighted to be hired by the National Museum of African American History and Culture in January of this year. And one thing I learned when I first got onto the job is that these cabins had been identified. And really, the importance of these slave cabins to the museum cannot be underestimated. They physically rest at the heart of the museum. And they're going to be positioned in this exhibition on slavery and freedom, really right between the cusp of slavery on one side of the cabin being interpreted and freedom on the other side of the cabin. 
I am a curator, and so what I'm interested in is how this cabin can reveal the story of African Americans going through the transition from slavery to freedom. So the cabin itself, the reason we're interested in this particular cabin, is that the cabins are, they're fairly small structures. It's about, I would say, 200 square feet. It's about 11 by 17, if I have the dimensions correct. And the cabin is divided into two rooms. So there's an interior room and then a room that you would walk into that had a front door and a back door. And then it also had a very small loft, and people probably would have slept up in the loft. So when you first walk into the cabin, right there at the front door would be the hearth. And there was a pretty large hearth where most people would have been gathering and doing their cooking and basically living their lives around the hearth. Then you also had a straight shot to the back door. And then you walk into the interior room, which could have been used for all sorts of different things, for both sleeping space but also general living space. And uh, that interior room had two windows. As is typical in this time period, they would not have had glass in the window or any sort of covering on the window, just a simple shutter. So the cabin was planked. It was actually planked with uh, machine-cut boards, which was kind of interesting to us, that a lot of money actually went into the manufacturing of the boards for this cabin. So they were probably purchased off the island of Edisto, brought onto Edisto, and the cabins were built there. And we think that there, we don't know for certain, but people report as many as 20 cabins on that particular street um, on Point of Pines Plantation. As Mary mentioned, there were two cabins, and one thing that we had to decide when I first came on board was which of these two cabins could really best tell this story for the American public. How could we best communicate the lives of people uh, who lived on the island in this time period through these cabins? And so we named them Cabin A and Cabin B. And we finally decided to go with Cabin A because it had the most original material. So many of those boards actually survived from when the cabin was initially constructed in about 1852. That is actually amazing given the fact that in the hurricane of 1893, the entire island was under about 12 feet of water. You know, that has always amazed me. And one thing we've learned about Point of Pines Plantation is that it was the first plantation that was established on Edisto, and it's because it's the highest point of ground. So I think that's one reason that those cabins might have survived. Another feature, let me, uh, if you don't mind, Nancy, me interrupting to bring up, of the cabins, the two cabins, is that they have a Barbados influence in that there is an overhang on the front of each cabin, which is a bit unusual for slave cabins in the South, but sort of typical of Edisto slave cabins. It gave, provided shade for the house. Uh, cabin A, which is the cabin that got moved to Washington, was in its original position. Cabin B had been moved. Is Cabin B still there? Cabin B, the last time I looked, was still there. Okay. And the Maybank family, which owns these cabins, have been very generous in their support of this project. Absolutely. And when we went first for our first site visit, that's when we discovered the other cabin. We had originally talked to Mr. Maybank about the Cabin A, what we refer to as Cabin A, and then discovered Cabin B. So I went back to him and I said, well, what do you think about Cabin B? Could we have that too? And he said, absolutely. Because they realized that these are are significant pieces of history and that by our our attempt to save them, that was the only way they were going to be saved. So, you know, he was trying to capture history and share it with other people as well. So they have been very generous and patient, I might add, with us working over these four years to try to, to save those buildings. This is Mary. I just want to add that the Maybank family has been very generous. And as a matter of fact, we took a subsequent trip down to Edisto Island. And they graciously opened their home to us, um, spent the day with us, and shared information with us, and gave us a tour of the grounds of the plantation. And it was really quite insightful. So in addition to um, providing the cabin, they've offered to share as much information as they have available to them so that we can really give a full story of that um, experience. And I'd like to add, I've been so impressed with Mary and Nancy and the rest of their colleagues and the amount of time they have invested 
in learning the history, not only of just these cabins, but also of Edisto in general. Um, they've spent countless hours and days doing research so that they can have the authentic story uh, that this cabin has to tell, which has been great. People don't realize what uh, an agricultural enterprise Edisto Island was oh, yeah. back before the Civil War. Right. Sea Island cotton primarily. Right. Right. Yes. There were attempts at rice and then indigo, but the cotton was king. Sea Island cotton, much more desirable than oh, yeah. upland cotton, which was grown in the rest of the state. Yeah, the long staple cotton. Yeah. Right. And what our interest from the museum's perspective is, is to how to, how to tell that story of Sea Island cotton from um, an additional perspective. So really by looking at that through the African-American lens, because certainly the story of Sea Island cotton is an American story. We know that the cotton in America was providing more than half of the gross national product before the Civil War. And so this is a common story that I think people across the nation are really familiar with. And as a museum, what we're interested in is telling both the black and the white story, but really to look at this this familiar narrative of U.S. history, but through the African-American lens so that we can open up new worlds and see a greater richness to this history. And so going down to Edisto has been so enjoyable for all of us because we've been in touch with all the different members of the community and trying to uh, not only uncover the history through papers and through census records, but by talking to people. So it's been wonderful. The Maybanks have opened up their doors. Gretchen and Carol, so many people have opened up their doors to us. Reverend Chick Morrison of the Baptist Church provided the church for us to have a forum where we could engage the community residents, particularly some of the elders of the um, Edisto Island, to share the history that they know of that was passed down through their families. And that was really very wonderful. We've spent, um, we've had two occasions where we've been able to go to the church and actually meet with Reverend Morrison and with some of his parishioners and just talk about the oral history and talk about life on Edisto Island. Are individuals on the island now, Gretchen, who are descended from people who actually worked on the Maybach Plantation? Absolutely. And one of the, I think Mary and Nancy will both agree with this, one of the most, I guess, moving things that happened. The, the week that they came down and moved the, dismantled the um, cabin and got it loaded up to take to to Virginia and D.C. in May, some of the Maybanks were there, but also uh, Junior Maggot, who is a local African-American resident of um, Edisto, his family had lived in the adjacent cabin and his aunt and uncle had lived in that actual cabin. So it was pretty powerful. He was there all week, every day, all week, watching the entire thing. And Mary and Nancy, he had stories that are going to help you interpret this cabin once you get it to the Smithsonian? Oh, my. He had stories. (laughs) It was uh, Mr. Meggett and his cousin, Teresa, Mm -hmm. and he has a cousin, Arlene. And they were all there on site throughout the entire process of taking down the cabin. We had some folks there who were videotaping the whole process. And at one point, someone suggested that Teresa speak in Gullah, which is the language that is familiar to her and part of her history, and share what she thought about the experience. She was hesitant at first, but she ultimately went ahead and and did that for us. So I told her I was going to ask her three questions. The three questions were, what is your name? Why are you here today? And what does this mean to you? And I don't know that I could convey to you really what it was like when she started to talk. But she literally turned into a different person. You lost Mm -hmm. Teresa, and she channeled a whole different person. I know I stood next to the camera as we were rolling, and she talked to me. I told her it's just going to be a conversation, and everyone else was standing behind us. And as she spoke, I started crying. And what she said in Gola, she said that essentially they found us, that they knew we were here, and they found us. They're going to tell our story. They're taking us to this beautiful place in Washington, D.C., and everyone's going to know that we were here. And it was just so powerful that I had tears streaming down my face. But when she finished, she literally went limp. 
And I asked her if she was okay, and I asked her why she didn't want to do that at first, and she said it's because she literally turns into her great-great-grandmother. And she did. And when I turned around, everyone was in tears. All the all of the people who were there for that day were in tears, and the crew members who helped to take down the house, they were just sitting there awestruck. It was really quite powerful. Now, keep in mind her cousin, Mr. Meggett, who is a very stoic man. He, as we were filming, he moved into the shot, and he leaned against this tree, and he just closed his eyes and listened to her. And you could just see he went to this other place. And I asked him, um, what did you think when you heard her? And he said, I heard my great-grandmother. I heard her. She was here with us. And it was it was absolutely one of those things, while it's on film, to have been there, it's one of the most memorable moments I could say I've had in this whole experience. Well, let me ask you, ladies, is that going to be part of the exhibit? We're working on that. We certainly are. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's... I'm getting goosebumps listening to you talk about that. But down here in South Carolina, particularly in the low country, this kind of experience, which is a little bit unusual, extrasensory, those of us who've been around for a while understand that. I'll tell you, Walter, um, and I I know Nancy and, and Carol and Mary and I have all talked about this, but it was an incredible week. It really was just, you know, a life-changing week for a lot of reasons, including, you know, the story with Teresa and Mr. Maggot. And to see Mr. Maggot there next to Coatsy Simmons, who, you know, the plantation owner and the one who lived in the cabin together talking and watching this process was just incredible experience. Just something you – I wish everybody could have seen it. But we also – we're doing a, an exhibit in our museum, a slave cabin exhibit. We're working on it right now to try to install in January when things settle down a little bit. But I've talked to Teresa to see if she will recreate that experience for us and let us tape it. She's thinking about it. <laughs> okay. But as she said, it, it takes a lot out of her. You can just see she was emotionally exhausted. Okay. And she was. But I have to add, um, Walter, if you don't mind, Mr. Meggett did his own interview And in his interview, we had to ask the crew members to be silent while we interviewed him. And they, everyone sat quiet, and they also were in awe of this gentleman when he spoke. He spoke about his experience because um, the cabins were occupied up until 1980. And as um, Nancy mentioned, he lived in one of the adjacent cabins. But when he explained his life... And he talked about, I'll never forget, he mentioned that his mother used to make his underwear out of rice bags. Yeah, I remember talking about that. It was mind-blowing. And when he was done, you could hear a pin drop. Like, everyone was just silent because all of these stories are really very powerful. And, Walter, you were asking, you know, how can our museum, essentially you're asking how can our museum convey everything that we learned during that week and afterwards. Right. So, in other words, the spirit of Edisto and the spirit of the Lowcountry. And, really, that's the joy of working in a museum is that museums are three-dimensional spaces, you know. And so you can walk into a space and literally feel And so our job as curators is to collect stories and collect objects, but as important to design a space so that we can convey the richness of what we learned during that particular week. So that will be our challenge. But I think the story of the cabin and the story of Edisto is exactly what Teresa was talking about. And that's the fact that this is the land of ancestors and that those ancestors are present and that those ancestors are glad that we've come back for them. And so that is definitely something that we will try to convey in the display of the cabin. Ladies, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Gretchen Smith from Edisto and with Nancy Burkall and Mary Elliott from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And we're talking about a slave cabin from Edisto Island that will be the focal point of a new exhibit of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mary and Nancy, was this experience that you were there when they were taking down the cabin 
I know you've worked with African-American history and culture before, but was this, I don't think it's wrong to call it a spiritual experience, was that new to you ladies? It wasn't new to me. I I had a similar experience when I was doing my personal research that I conducted in I have family from Oklahoma, and I traced them back to Mississippi and found some of the original churches where they worshipped in an original plantation. But regardless of whether it was new or not, it's always a very powerful experience. But what I think was different about this particular occasion was that we had a group of people that were black, white, Hispanic, young, old, men, women, and it was just really powerful to see everyone connect on the human level. There was not a, it was not a, this is a black story, this is a white story. It was the story of Edisto Island, but it's being seen through the lens of the African-American experience. And then to have, as Gretchen said, um, Coach Simmons there alongside Mr. Megid, it really spoke volumes to me about this is the thing that we want people to experience when they come into the museum, that this is a human story. It's through the lens of the African-American experience, but it's an American story and it's a community story. So that was what was really exciting about this particular experience. I think for me um, that in some ways it was an exceptional experience, except that I too have experienced that um, living in Mississippi particularly when I was doing work on slavery in Neshoba County, that I experienced something that was very similar. And the way that I've been thinking about it is that there's something where book learning just doesn't do it, that you need to go to a place, you need to speak to the people, and it's really kind of this narrative that's been lying there. It's history in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And when it rises to the surface, it's as almost as if the world has shifted. And it's experiencing that shift. That's an incredibly powerful experience. Well, it's it's interesting that this is a, a phenomenon that actually South Carolinians, black and white, have known for a, a while. And a while back, we're talking to the local artist, Jonathan Green, and he was actually commissioned by a monastery, Mepkin Abbey, to do a painting that would reflect the spirits of the place because the abbot there said that he thought the spirits were unsettled. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you seen it? Has he done it? Yes. It's called Seeking. And, uh, oh, yeah. In fact, the Gibbs Museum of Art had a, an exhibit, and there were a collection of poems written in response to this particular oh, wow. painting, poems and prose. This painting, which is going back to the Abbey, it's on tour right now, but it's huge. It's about six by eight feet, and it's set in a low country maritime forest, and this young man is going out to have an experience uh, in his church. It's like confirmation or We actually talked to um, Reverend Morrison on Edisto Island, and we talked about that, the entire seeking experience, and I think Nancy could share some of what he said and some of the other things we found out in research. Well, um, as you probably know, that seeking is this long tradition that goes pretty far back. We're not really sure how far back, where people literally are when you're coming of age. Uh, You experience almost a year's worth of initiation, which kind of culminates in going into the woods. And as you've said, um, that it is a world of spirits. And so going into the woods is is really having to face those spirits, and many times they could be troubled spirits. And so when we went down to uh, Edisto Island and Reverend Morrison was telling us about his seeking experience, he did talk about how, you know, you're coming face-to-face with some of your greatest fears. And then we have many colleagues who work in the museum as well. Of course, seeking is something that continues on today. And um, some people have uh, moved away from the actual going out into the woods. Instead, they seek their spiritual pathways differently. And that brings us to the whole question of where this kind of practice comes from. And there are long debates about could this 
stretch all the way back um, to Africa and to African societies. And we do know that along um, the lower rice coast, among the Akan people, that there is a belief in terms of the spirit um, always traveling through water. That really the difference between our world and another world is always traveling through water. And one thing that we've noticed in the low country is that many of the burial grounds are near water, so that water is your passageway through. And um, if you notice, one thing we noticed on this actual cabin is that the windows and the doorways had been painted blue. And that blue, in many ways, is symbolizing water, so that you hope that those spirits will be captured in thinking and trapped in the water that's painted around your doorway. Walter, can I go back to one thing, follow up on what Nancy said a few minutes ago about book learning versus experiencing Mm -hmm. history. Early on when we were, these cabins were donated to us and we announced that we were going to take on this project of preserving them and moving them to the museum, we got some criticism, not a lot, but some criticism as to why we were glorifying slavery. Well, that's the farthest thing from our minds and certainly from the Smithsonian's minds, it's not a glorification of slavery. It's an understanding of it. And we felt that only by experiencing this history, experiencing these cabins and saving them, could we learn from our history. Because even on Edisto, you find a lot of uh, children, they don't have a clue about this history that was so important to our island. And an example I gave in an early newsletter, when I was uh, a good bit younger, I took my two sons to Germany and Austria, and we went to one of the um, concentration camps. And I saw what a change it made in them. It really made it come alive. They'd studied it in school, but to actually go through a concentration camp and see history for yourself made a lasting impact on them. And I thought, you know, we can do something similar with um, the slave cabin. It's not glorification. It's understanding and preserving. Well, the fact that these cabins survived from slavery to yeah. to freedom, as you said, still still in use in the 1980s. Right. right, believe it or not. No electricity, no water, but still being lived in. And as my colleague Mary Elliott always says, it's history in plain sight. It's yes. history right under your feet. Right. And I think in many ways, because of all of those things that Gretchen was mentioning, people are uncomfortable with the issue of slavery. Um, slavery is equated with powerlessness. Slavery is equated with unskilled labor. And what we hope to show is that a dynamic culture and a dynamic society experienced this and came through it. And uh, that's what we hope to convey so that slavery no longer becomes something that we all seek to avoid, but that we understand its truest impact on the making of America. One thing people who don't know the written history don't don't understand that in 1860, South Carolina had the largest black population in terms of percentage, roughly 60 percent, in the Union. The only other state that had a black majority was Mississippi, and it wasn't even close. Sixty percent of the population on an Edisto Island, mm-hmm. it was probably close to 90 percent. Right. It was 95 percent. I was just reading about that. And so if you think about what 95% means on Edisto Island is that literally all of the work that was done on Edisto Island was done within an African-American community in an African-American context so that everything, every type of work, the engineering of a gin, the carpentry, the blacksmithing, the managing of the labor, the transforming of huge cypress swamps into fields. All of this was done within the African-American community and with the culture that was informing all of this labor and work. It's the culture as well as the landscape that we've inherited. I have to add, I think part of that, drawing the the visitor in or drawing in um, the public to want to engage in learning more about slavery, Oftentimes, it's spoken about from the perspective of labor and the perspective of the horrific experience. And I imagine, like, with a young person, they think, I don't want to hear about the horrors of slavery. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear about all the labor. But one of the things that I think is going to um, really change the dynamic of wanting to learn about this period and what people went through 
is a better and deeper understanding of the human experience. And that human experience is not just defined by there was Johnny, there was Johnny's hoe, and Johnny dug the ditch with the hoe. It's remembering that Johnny also had someone he loved. He had children. He had a um, faith system. He had courage to survive what he went through. And we recently had an exhibit. It was um, the exhibit on Monticello cause, because the museum has a temporary space where we do pre-building exhibits at. And that space is, um, is a dedicated space in National Museum of American History. And in that exhibit, we had a, a colleague who is our education specialist. Um, she actually put together a low-tech interactive. Um, you pull open a, a question. It says, um, if you could run away, would you? But the interesting part about that question is she based it on a gentleman who was based at Monticello, but his wife was with um, Thomas Jefferson in the White House, and she had his children while she was at the White House. And this gentleman stayed at Monticello but had the autonomy to travel between the White House and Monticello alone on a horse. And the question was, if you were him, would you have escaped? Now, this is based on the experience of an African-American. But I could pull anyone into that storyline and say, what would you do? If you're a man and your wife and children are a distance away from you and you are enslaved and you could go between those two places and you could escape, would you? Would you leave your wife and children? Would you take off on your own? If you left, would you go and check on them every now and then? Would you keep connections to make sure that they're okay? Or would you just leave? And that's a human question. That's a human question. And that's the most important thing is for people to understand this is a human story and it's an American story. And so there are many ways that people will be able to enter into these stories, whether they're young, old, black or white. This was a human experience. But also, very importantly, African-Americans are pivotal to the development of America economically, politically, socially. I think you mentioned earlier, Nancy, that on the eve of the Civil War, 50 percent of the gross national product was from cotton. Oh, yes. Yes. So the entire nation really was profiting from cotton. So that's one thing that we're also going to be talking about in the exhibit is not just um, the labor and the culture, but also how the North was really uh, deeply invested in this entire system as well. So in terms of clothing, uh, enslaved people, in terms of manufacturing shoes for the quote-unquote Negro trade, uh, most of American industrialization is actually coming um, to support the cotton industry. And, so it's an American story. And, and you mentioned the clothing, and of course that's one of the ironies of pre-Civil War American history is that southern cotton was shipped to New England textile mills Right. Where it was turned into cloth, and there was actually a very coarse grade of cloth that was called Negro cloth. Exactly. Pretty much like Osnaberg today. I mean, it was a very tough cloth, and it was shipped back south. It, exactly. Yes. So we are telling that story. So that's one thing that our museum is interested in doing is really um, having people recognize these stories that have not necessarily been told but are, are really there and have always been there. But we have never quite put the pieces together in this particular way. Walter, can I add one thing in just um, really for the people of South Carolina in general, but Edisto in particular? We were so grateful that this uh, cabin was going to be preserved, saved, and moved to D.C. to this wonderful new museum. But uh, I believe it was when, uh, Nancy, you came down in February, was it? Or, yes. Yeah, when I first met Nancy. And she started talking about the importance of the slave cabin to the the, I mean, the museum itself, that it would be in the center of the museum, it would be in the heart of the museum. And actually she and I, uh, Dr. Bunch referred to it as the heart of this new museum. And I think we can take great pride in, in what's happening to our donation to the museum, the Smithsonian, because it's far beyond what we could have ever hoped for. You know, to have it on our property at Edisto would be great. 
But it would be seen by, you know, thousands a year. But to be in Washington, D.C., it will literally be seen by millions who can understand the Edisto story, the South Carolina story. And I think we can take a lot of pride in that. And my board has been committed to saving this cabin, and this exceeds our wildest dreams. While we hate to lose our piece of history, it's going to somewhere where everyone from around the world can see it. Gretchen and her board members have been beyond gracious, hospitable. They, um, When we were down... I they had a dinner for us and I said, "Oh my gosh, the food never stopped coming." <laughs> it was it was wonderful, but it it was wonderful. They were also just curious about even about, you know, more details about how can the story be told? How will it be told? Um and just the museum itself. But the Edisto Island Historic Preservation Society, they are a treasure. And one of the things that we kept reiterating everywhere we went, because we visited several places in South Carolina while we were down there doing research, we told everyone this is a community story. And that's very important because um, the story has to be told where everyone sees themselves in that story, but it is very much a community story. And so that's why it's important that we have um, the support of the Maybank family as well as the very important support of um, Mr. Meggett and Teresa and Arlene and then the Preservation Society who has some of that foundational research already done. So, And one thing that we've really discovered is by finding a cabin on a particular plantation really reveals suddenly the stories of individuals. So we've been working with an organization who has just done wonderful work for us, completely volunteer, Low Country Africana, with Tony Carrier and Ramona LaRoche and Paul Gabarini. And what they have helped us do is to actually find people who lived in that cabin during slavery. And we've just been uncovering these amazing stories so that people can relate to the people who lived within the cabin. And let me just tell you one story, which I really love. There is this one man who uh, lived across the river on Wadmala Island. And he had a sweetheart over on Edisto, and this is during slavery times. And so every night he would cross over, and he would visit his sweetheart until suddenly he just really couldn't take it anymore. He wasn't willing to just live apart from her. And so he ran away and lived in the woods, and he lived in that woods until the Union forces came, and then he joined the USCT, and uh, that's how we know his story. And so it's just these wonderful stories about love and about courtship and about all sorts of things that are coming alive because we found this one cabin in this one place on this one island where suddenly we can really dig in and tell stories that I think everyone will be able to relate to. And since you mentioned, Nancy, the one cabin, one thing we have to emphasize is that there are cabins throughout the U.S. And people drive by, like we say, in plain sight. There are cabins in places that people probably never imagine. We Downtown was, D.C. Yes. <laughs> and, and we could say cabins. We can also say dwelling sites of um, where enslaved people lived, um, whether it's in the urban environment or the rural environment. As a result of this effort, we received so much um, coverage, including this wonderful conversation today. And as a result, we've had many people come forward who have told us about cabins that they know of existing in, you know, essentially their own backyard. But I have to say that it's really important that you know, to really appreciate where you're from, pay attention to what's around you because, like we said, that history is right there. And it brings things to life, particularly for young people. And really, we're so dependent on people coming forward like that, that, you know, the common stories that you have of just your own everyday life or your mother's everyday life or your grandmother's everyday life, people don't recognize really the deep, deep history that's embedded in all of these everyday things. And one thing we've been grateful for is by collecting the cabin, people have begun to realize, oh, well, I do have something to share. I do have a story to tell here. And we're, we're here and we're ready to learn from you. I would echo everything they're saying, and it's just, I think the Smithsonian, I'm convinced that the Smithsonian 
will let people see that it's not a story of just one facet of our society. It is a human story, and it's it comes from every side, and they're doing just such a good job. And I think I can't wait to go to Washington to see, you know, how it turns out, and uh, we can take, I think, all South Carolinians can take pride in, in that our story will be told from an honest point of view, from a full point of view. Mary and Nancy, just a curious question. You've got this wooden cabin that you've dismantled. How are you going about reconstructing it, preserving it? I assume it was probably heart pine or cypress. Both. Yeah, Which, it was um, cypress roof and heart pine. Well, we're re- very lucky that so much of it did survive and survive in in pretty good shape. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe, Gretchen. <laughs> yeah. And we're so <laughs> grateful to the Edisto Island Historic Preservation Society for keeping it upright. You know, that um, by the time we got down there, they had built a nice firm foundation so that the building didn't collapse. But um, the pine siding is still there and, and pretty in pretty good shape. So um, we've been working with Museum Resources, Inc., and a gentleman by the name of Kerry Shackelford. And he is the person who dismantled the cabin. Uh, then the cabin had to be fumigated, as you might imagine. And he's gone through and with his team and assessed every single board. So at this point, the boards are being preserved. And really, there's some parts of the cabin where we will have to put up uh, newer boards, but we'll make sure to call those out so that people will understand what's original to the cabin versus what's been added. But uh, we recently met with Carrie, and we were very surprised that very little will have to be added to the cabin. So really, it's almost an intact uh, museum object. Nancy, do you know when it's going to be reconstructed within the museum, when that will happen? Well, the museum is in the process of being built, right. <laughs> as you know. Right. <laughs> so it probably won't be until um, we're beginning to install our exhibitions. Okay. So I would say that would be in 2015, mid-year. It was fascinating, Walter, to watch the process. Um, they were so meticulous and numbered every board and did diagrams. And, I mean, they knew exactly where everything was and exactly how it will go back up. And we're very methodical, and I know we'll do a great job in recreating it as it was, with a few improvements. And And Gretchen, actually, Kerry will be putting, reassembling the cabin at some point um, in his workshop. Well, we might have to go to Virginia. uh Uh-huh, I think you might. It will be in some sort of setting, I mean, because the street would have been swept, a sand street. Most of the activities took place outside outside, outside the cabin itself. That's and we did some uh, we've done some archaeological research and unfor- on that particular cabin and unfortunately it's been plowed up right to the door almost so there was very little to be found but we you may have seen we had a great and still continue to have a great program with what we call our um, archaeology students from the Jane Edwards School and have been doing this for three years we've been digging and looking for artifacts and they're now called the history detectives but we meet every Monday with these kids and we started at Point of Pines and now we're over at another plantation where we're we'll be starting that in a, in a few weeks again it's been a great project with those kids. Jane Edwards children are elementary and predominantly African-American. But it's been a great experience because we've had Hispanic kids, we've had black kids, we've had white kids, all working together, learning about their shared history. And it's just been, as we said, it's better than being in a, learning in a book. You actually experience it, and the kids have been great. Edisto, along with the entire, not just the low country, entire state, there's a lot of history, as Nancy and Mary said, in plain sight. Oh, yeah. If you just look for it. Yeah. The thing that amazes me about the spot that the cabin's on is that uh, Paul Grimble first came to Edisto in 1674. And he's the person who owned Point of Pines to begin with. And he chose that point of land because it had the deepest harbor. So the most ocean-going ships could just come right up to his wharf. And inland from that, if you just draw a direct line and go inland from that, eventually there was a store that was down at the end of the road. Well, that store, a version of that store, still exists. Mm -hmm. And that road has been there since 1680s. And so if you think that cabin is right on that road that has existed for that many centuries, and if you just think about that history marching by every single day, I think it's just fascinating. Ladies, we've got a couple of minutes left. From Washington, any particular last words you'd like to have for our listeners? 
Hmm. Well, we're just looking forward to everyone coming to the museum. We appreciate all of the generous assistance we've received from um, everyone down in South Carolina. We appreciate that their sincere interest in helping us tell this important story. It's going to be a great experience, I think, for everyone. One thing we're really excited about is... Again, African-American history is American history, but some of the things that we often talk about in terms of American history, Revolutionary War, Civil War, expanding the nation, now it's going to add a whole other dimension, another layer to the excitement of learning more about the American story. So we're really looking forward to that. And Gretchen from Edisto Island? Just one more iteration of gratitude to the Smithsonian for, for taking over where we couldn't do any more and I guess to all my board and our members for their support over these past four years as we tried and tried and tried and we're grateful to the Smithsonian folks for doing what we couldn't do. And I'd like to just add my notice of gratitude really to Gretchen and the entire Edisto Island community because people have really just opened up their doors and their hearts to us and have really made this work such a pleasure. And South Carolina, more generally, has been so incredibly generous to us. And um, we're really grateful and feel very close to the community down there. So we thank South Carolina and Edisto Island. Nancy Burkall, Mary Elliott from the Smithsonian, and Gretchen Smith from Edisto Island. Thank you, ladies, for being with us today on The Journal. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. I learned something, and Mary Elliott, Nancy Burkow, and Gretchen Smith kept saying things that are dear to my heart. History is out there in South Carolina everywhere. It's history in plain sight. The story of the slave cabin from the Maybanks Plantation is about people, their cooperation, their interest in history, and their willingness to see it preserved and shared with everybody. It's not just the story of the cabin itself, but it's the story of the people who lived in this place for literally centuries. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be Dr. Benjamin Dunlap, the retiring 10th president of Walford College. I was asked to stay on as a faculty member at Harvard. I always thought it was because I was the token Southerner. When they brought literary celebrities through the department, when they appeared in my doorway, I would leap up from my desk, hold out my hand, and say, hey, how are you? Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon.